there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 77, uh, and then we're going to hear from Sean. So I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long gone. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the people. You will be, or <clears throat> you with your arms redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. In deep, indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Thank you, Courtney. And thank you all for having us this morning. Mallory, my wife. And I are, feel super blessed and privileged to be with you this morning. We were commenting at the beginning how much we love this space. And we've heard about Collective for a while. I'm going to end up telling you about that. I can tell you already that the Spirit is at work. Because th this uh, sermon this morning, or this talk, is going to be about story. And Courtney and I had talked yesterday, and she mentioned that we weren't going to have music ministry, per se, this morning. That instead we would have a reflection time with just a song at the beginning. So this sermon that's all about stories, as soon as we walk in, what do I hear playing but the song, My Story? And I said, let's use that one. <laughs> so uh, y'all have been talking a little bit about stories recently in church. You've talked about the Good Samaritan story and some other parables. The message for today is to keep in touch with our stories to keep in touch with our stories. We're gonna talk about the importance of that. We're gonna talk about the call to keep in touch with our stories. And I'm also gonna talk about the way God uses arrows to keep in touch with our stories. And in this case, I have some arrows here. Uh, these kind of arrows, this is uh, something I get from TCU, <laughs> uh, where you mark something in your, your book. You wanna remember a really important page in the story. You'd use these arrows. 
And I, uh, besides being a chaplain, part-time chaplain at Texas Health Harris Methodist, I am also uh, teaching at TCU in the fall. I teach a couple of classes, religion and popular culture, two classes of that, and religion, health, and meaning. So when I talk about who I am, my story will always include, to some extent, TCU. This is what Tobin Seavers says about stories. For human beings make lives together by sharing their stories with each other. There is no other way of being together for our kind. And I, Courtney and Megan and I are, and Mallory are, are meeting for the first time in person today, but I feel like I already know them a little bit because of their story. And y'all know their story better than I do, but let me remind you of that story, and Mallory, who has not heard their story, let me tell you, Mallory, about their story. <laughs> Again, Tobin Seaver says there, uh, that for human beings make lives together by sharing their stories with each other, there's no other way of being together for our kind. Courtney and Megan are both passionate about diversity and inclusion because they themselves have felt excluded and unwelcome. Both live with chronic illness and both feel a calling to serve God through leadership as women. Being disabled, Courtney and Megan have felt excluded by an inaccessible world. Having grown up in traditional Christian denominations, Courtney and Megan have felt excluded by church leaders and peers who do not believe in God's calling of women into leadership, especially in head pastor roles. These experiences have created a passion in Courtney and Megan to practice radical inclusivity, doing whatever is necessary to ensure Collective Church is a safe, welcoming, truly inclusive space for anyone who wishes to join and worship. And again, I feel like I, I knew them a little bit when I read that story. When you talk about story, and again, sharing a little bit with you about who I am, I, I confirmed with Courtney and uh, Mallory and Megan um, that in the United States, I grew up in Canada, so I never know what was like distinctly <laughs> Canadian, and, uh, that y'all had show and tell in elementary school, so there's a little bit of show and tell going on today, the whole story. My favorite writer is a guy named Frederick Beekner, and he writes a lot about story. This is what he says in uh, an entry called, appropriately enough, Story. It is well to remember what the ancient creeds of the Christian faith declare credence in. God of God, light of light, for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, crucified, dead, buried, rose again, sitteth on the right hand of God, shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. That is not a theological idea or a religious system. It is a series of largely flesh and blood events that happened, are happening, will happen in time and space. For better or worse, it is a story. It is well to remember because it keeps our eyes on the central fact that the Christian faith always has to do with flesh and blood, time and space. More specifically, with your flesh and blood, or as we would say, y'all's flesh and blood, <laughs> and mine, with the time and space that day by day we are all of us involved with, stub our toes on, flounder around in trying to look as if we have good sense. In other words, the truth that Christianity claims to be true is ultimately to be found, if it's to be found at all, not in the Bible or the church or theology. The best they can do is point to the truth, but in 
our stories. It is absolutely crucial, therefore, to keep in constant touch with what is going on in your own life's story. And I would ask you to consider how do you keep in touch with what is going on in your own life story? So it's absolutely crucial, therefore, to keep in constant touch with what is going on in your own life story and to pay close attention to what is going on in the stories of others' lives. If God is present anywhere, it is in those stories that God is present. If God is not present in those stories, then you might as well give up the whole business. That's kind of a strong ending to that. <laughs> um, so he also says this in a book called The Sacred Journey. My assumption is that the story of any one of us is in some measure the story of us all. And that's why in Courtney and Megan's story, I see myself reflected in some ways in that story. For the reader, I suppose it is like looking through someone else's photograph album. What holds you, if nothing else, is the possibility that somewhere among all those shots of people you never knew and places you never saw, you may come across something or someone you recognize. So let me show you a place and, uh, that I assume many of you have never been and someone who you might not recognize even though he's standing in front of you right now. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is me in grade 10. I was a whopping five foot three <laughs> and under 130 pounds. Uh, our, our starting center was six foot 10, William Najuku, who ended up being a second round draft pick of the Indiana Pacers. I ended up being a star at LA Fitness. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is me playing for Halifax West. That was my high school. And uh, we were playing uh, a high school from Portland, Maine. We were always insecure as Canadians, especially in sports, that if you're playing a US team, like we were almost defeated before we went on the court. <laughs> so we ended up winning this tournament and beating this Portland, Maine high school uh, in the final. And that was a, a huge accomplishment. But uh, so I grew up with an interest primarily in basketball, but I ended up at an SEC school for my PhD in religion. So I did a PhD in religion at the University of Florida. My focus was religion in the Americas from a sociological, anthropological, historical perspective. Let me just say that a PhD doesn't signal that I'm a super smart guy, it just means I have some endurance, because you have to have endurance <laughs> to get through it. Uh, and uh, none of us, in, well, I can tell you my wife is smarter than I am. She does not have a PhD, although she does have a master. So again, titles, schmeidels. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, at the University of Florida, was walking along the Americas Plaza, and I'm walking with a fellow PhD student. And in your second or third year of the PhD, you also teach classes, typically. And this student, uh, my colleague was a little PhD student, was, was older than I was, and she was farther along. She was teaching classes at that point. And we're walking along the Americas Plaza, and this student starts walking this way, and I lose like the attention of the colleague I'm with because she's like, starts looking giddy and is smiling, and, and then that student, big, big, strong, hunkin' looking student, walks by, and she like gives him the thumbs up and he's on the phone and he gives her the thumbs up. And I'm thinking to myself, is that your student? Because you have an odd relationship with your <laughs> student. <laughs> and I said, who's that? She said, you don't know who that is? And I said, no. She said, that's Tim Tebow. <laughs> so 
So you may or may not have heard of Tim Tebow. I, at that point, had not heard of Tim Tebow. I was from Canada. Again, I was into basketball. Didn't know much about American uh, college football. But Tim Tebow became very famous for wearing Bible verses under his, uh, in his uh, eye black or guy liner, whatever you want to call it here. Um, he'd write various verses. And at one point in a championship game in 2008, he wrote John 3.16 in his eye black. And I, I'm sure if you've been to Sunday school, you know John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. And so uh, Tebow wore that in the championship game and the, the camera stayed fixed on his handsome face the whole time um, and they won. And that night, the next day he was having dinner with his, or having lunch with his dad and a PR person from University of Florida came up and said, Tim, did you hear what happened? He said, no. 90 plus million people Googled John 316 last night because you wore that in your eye black. And then three years to the day of that event when he wore John 316 famously under his eye black and uh, 90 plus million people Googled John 316, Mallory and I we're watching Tim Tebow uh, at a friend's house. The friend's name uh, is Philip, and he was also a PhD student at the University of Florida. He primarily studied Buddhism. I primarily studied Christianity, but we, we found common religious ground in our religious devotion to Tim Tebow, <laughs> who, was, who was playing now in the NFL as a very controversial quarterback for the Denver Broncos, because he was just not a classical quarterback. He not very accurate, uh, <laughs> probably an understatement in terms of his passing, primarily a running quarterback. But inexplicably, when he was playing, starting games, the Broncos kept winning in the like craziest fashion. Like the game would practically be over and then an opponent would make an inexplicable miscue and Tebow would be mic'd up singing, you know, you came from heaven to earth and he'd go out on the field and then they'd win the game. And so there's lots of talk that like, is God intervening in football? <laughs> this was really interesting for me because I was doing a PhD and it was a very cerebral exercise. And I felt like my faith was getting really kind of dry. It's interesting to me when you think about the broader story of Christianity, that the enlightenment in the 18th century, when people started saying, you know, religion has kind of obscured a lot of truth about science and history, and we need to get rid of this and focus on the truth that we can discover with the tools of academic uh, inquiry. And then, so Christians that went in the enlightenment direction tended to kind of give up supernatural sort of stuff and became a lot more cerebral and rational in their faith. And then the conservative Christians got all the cool, supernatural, wild, mystical stuff that I'm into. <laughs> and it was like a weird sort of divide. So I found like my faith was kind of getting enchanted again, just even considering that there might be something going on here in the messy, messy mundane of this football field and, and with Tim Tebow. Three years to the day, Denver Broncos playing the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, who at the time were the number, had the number one ranked defense in the NFL. They were missing a couple of key defensive players, but no one thought the Broncos, led by Tim Tebow at that point, had a chance against the, the Steelers. In fact, they had been practicing leading up to this playoff game practicing inserting Brady Quinn, who was at the beginning of the season, the third string quarterback for third downs. 
because they didn't think that Tebow could accurately like convert a third down. So they were gonna put in a backup who had not taken a snap all season just for third downs. So that's how little faith anyone, including his own team, had in Tebow. And then what happened? Tebow inexplicably caught fire and had all these long touchdowns. And then it was uh, overtime. And we're at my friend Phillip's place. He has a little girl, a two-year-old girl at the time, who's adorable. And we're watching this football game. And I said to her, okay, so what we need to happen is Tebow's got to throw the ball and he's got to go all the way. And then what happens? Tebow, first play in overtime, throws the ball, and Demarius Thomas, the receiver, runs all the way down the field for a touchdown. Game over. I fell prostrate. <laughs> like an ancient Israelite <laughs> falling before a foreign god. Here I was in devotion to religion and sports on my face. This little girl, Ava, was strapped to my back in excitement. And then, uh, we don't have any kids at the moment, is that true, in here? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there is. Okay, so I, went, I had cleared beforehand whether I could swear in church today. I will not swear. <laughs> I got a relieved look from a parent. <laughs> but I will say that there's a w word that begins with the same beginning letter of the name Frank. And my friend Philip, while I'm like this, and the two-year-old is on my back, screams out, Frank, <laughs> Frank, and I'm like, oh no, there must have been a flag on the play, and uh, I look up, and I realize, no, he was just that excited. <laughs> that was the way he expresses his excitement in that moment, and you know, that's a holy moment when I look back to it. It's kind of weird to think, like, this guy proclaiming this profane word, Frank, um, it being a holy moment, but the connection between Mallory and Philip and our friends and this little, it was so much excitement. And I want to talk about another kind of holy moment where someone was screaming out Frank, and in, in this case, it was me. But before I do that, uh, so after the game, remember this is three years to the day that Tebow had worn the John 316 in the championship college game. And now in the playoff game in the NFL for the Broncos, three years to the day, that, that's the game I just described, they went in overtime. They started adding up some statistics after the game. Just as a PR person had come to Tebow three years before and said, oh my gosh, 90 plus million people Googled John 316 because you wore that yesterday. This is what happened. PR person came up to Tebow after the Broncos win. Tim, did you know that it was exactly three years since you wrote John 316? Tebow did not know that. And during this game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The time of possession was 31.06. The ratings for the night were 31.6 million. And during the game, 90 million people Googled John 316. This is what Frederick Buechner says. I think of a person I haven't seen or thought of for years, and 10 minutes later, I see her crossing the street. I turn on the radio to hear a voice reading the biblical story of Jael, which is the story that I have spent the morning writing about. A car passes me on the road, and its license plate consists of my wife's and my initials side by side. When you tell people stories like that, their usual reaction is to laugh. One wonders why. 
I believe that people laugh at coincidence as a way of relegating it to the realm of the absurd, and of therefore not having to take seriously the possibility that there is a lot more going on in our lives than we either know or care to know. Who can say what it is that's going on? I certainly don't want to make any like firm theological arguments that God was intervening in Tim Tebow's football career. <laughs> Who can say what it is that's going on? But I suspect that part of it anyway is that every once in so often we hear a whisper from the wings that goes something like this. And maybe you need to hear this whisper from the wings today for you. Because we've already had some coincidences this morning. You've turned up in the right place at the right time. You're doing fine. Don't ever think that you've been forgotten. So it's really interesting what Thibault ended up doing with that story. Recently, Mallory and I, my wife, we went to a concert by a hip-hop artist named, uh, named uh, Propaganda, or calls himself Propaganda, I don't think that was his birth name. <laughs> <laughs> and, this, uh, and he has written a book and has a current album that deals with telling better stories tell better stories. And what Thibault used that John 316 event on Harry Connick Jr., this talk show uh, hosted by the uh, famous musician, to change the narrative about disability. He because of all the attention about this 316 game, he got on there and they wanted to interview him about that and he said, but let me tell you about this. He said, when I was 15 years old, I was in the Philippines as a missionary with my dad and uh, the village was so excited about these Americans coming to visit that they had actually had a kid who had a disability. Thibault said his feet were on backwards. They had marginalized him. They had excluded him. They had put him off in a bamboo hut by himself so that he wouldn't be seen by the American missionaries. And they talk about, Thibault says that, that there was this concept in the village that disability was a curse. It was something to be marginalized. And so Thibault heard about this and he went into the hut and he talked to this little kid Sherwin with his legs on backwards and he put him up on his shoulders and Thibault walked him into the place where the Americans were speaking prominently so everyone could see him. And he said this, tell better stories. He said he felt like he could see the narrative changing in their heads about disability. Now, let me acknowledge, because I know we have very smart people from a variety of different social and political persuasions here, that there's some problematic dimensions talking about this white American going <laughs> to the Philippines and then representing this third world country as a backward place. For more on that, uh, in October, my book, Spirit and Sport, Religion and the Fragile Athletic Body, comes out by the University of uh, Tennessee Press. So in October, and I deal with those complexities. For now though, we'll just emphasize the positive <laughs> part of changing the narrative. So 316, that was Thibaut's number. My faith got kind of encha enchanted at that time. I started, even though my focus was on religion in Latin America in my PhD, I started writing a lot more about religion and sports. In fact, I was writing um, pseudonymously, how do you say that? I had a pseudonym, and I was writing <laughs> with a pen name uh, different articles about Tim Tebow and other people uh, who had brought this intersection of faith and sport to the culture. The number for me, though, that started appearing all the time in really meaningful ways was 717. And I would tell Mallory about this. I don't know what's happening. And you have to understand, I have, 
I have a confusing religious background. My, my mom is Pentecostal, my dad's Catholic, so I was raised confused. <laughs> and um, in the Pentecostal context, the whole idea of numbers having any significant or coincidence, that sounded very new age, which was a bad thing from that perspective. <laughs> so I didn't have a background in this, but it just started happening. 717 would come up when I really needed encouragement, and I would tell Mallory, and she'd say, that's really cool. And then I would walk away, and she would roll her eyes. I could tell. I knew she what she was in. <laughs> She, she wasn't buying it. But just as Thibault used the numbers 316 to change the narrative about disability, or at least he tried to, Mallory, the 717, ended up changing one of Mallory's narratives. And so I held this up, tell better stories, both as an example of a recent artist that we saw, Propaganda, but also if you look closely, you will see that we have five pets. Because there is hair all over this. And this is a freshly washed <laughs> sweatshirt. So we have three dogs and two cats. But at the time, we only had one cat. And I was not even in Texas at the, at the moment. But I had gone. I felt a strong urge. I wanted another cat. I went to Craigslist. I found Kitty looking for a dog friend. And we had a dog. And, and it's a black and white cat. And I had a black and white cat uh, as my first pet. And I said, Mallory, there's, this is our cat. Can you go pick up our cat? <laughs> and so she made an arrangement, talked to them to see this cat. And she went and visited this cat. And she was not going to get this cat. Because <laughs> the cat would not make any eye contact with Mallory. He seemed very skittish, would you say? <laughs> yeah. Describe, describe how he was. <laughs> Not affectionate. Right, not affectionate. My wife just pointed out that there's just no connection between her and this cat. Remember, though, I had like drilled in this whole thing God uses 717, like 717. She'd roll her eyes. And then the woman was like, Yeah, the woman who was fostering the cat said, This cat is very predictable in one sense. Like, he has a very particular time he gets up in the morning. He gets up at like 717 every morning. And she's like, Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so she went off and texted me and said, I guess we're getting this cat. <laughs> and this cat has been a lifesaver for me. I, I might even say, go so far, you'd have to hear a little bit more of my story of uh, mental health challenges, but, but that cat has been like an emotional support cat for me. In so we, we call him our little 717 cat. His name is also Oliver. <laughs> and then 717 came up in an important way, and in a way that I think y'all are going to find important given your history at this church, and it had to do with a transition I was making in my life. And it's interesting because remember I said with the Enlightenment that the Enlightenment kind of stripped away the supernatural for a lot of religious folk, and they began to read the Bible in a very uh, critical way. Critical not meaning like, oh, this sucks, but like... Um, Hopefully that wasn't a swear word. No, yeah, just like critical in that like this probably never happened or this is not scientifically accurate. And then so you had that liberal development of Christianity that was very rational and then the conservative folk kind of kept the supernatural. What was interesting for me was kind of the supernatural enchanted elements of Christianity that moved me in a more progressive direction away from the conservative theological orientation that I had been raised with, even though, again, I had a confusing upbringing. I still, when I had come to faith, uh, I came to faith in a pretty conservative theological context. I really started wrestling with the uh, issue of faith and sexuality. Because at the time, in terms of the story 
that I was telling myself. It was the story that you would still hear in the Roman Catholic Church officially today, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and many evangelical Protestant churches, that yes, God loves everyone, but homosexual or LGBTQ plus sex acts are sinful. So you, what is it again? Love the, love the sinner, love the sinner hate the sin. Like, that's the story I had been telling myself. But that story started to not seem plausible anymore to me. As I met some super spiritual, loving, merciful uh, LGBTQ plus people who were not only our friends, were a part of our family. And so Mallory and I started praying about starting a community that would be LGBTQ plus affirming. But this is hard. You all know, because I, I know many people here have come from a more conservative religious background than where you're at right now. Um, and it's not, hopefully you're not hearing me saying liberal Christianity good, conservative Christianity bad necessarily. Uh, it's complicated, more complicated than that. But um, I had been taught that there's judgment especially for people who teach. In fact, there's a reference in James to that effect that you, teachers will be judged. And I thought, I better be right about this if I'm going to start saying what I started to believe is the new story that I was embracing, that not only is LGBTQ plus sexuality not inherently, uh, inherently sinful, but it's actually a needed reflection of the very diversity at the heart of who God is. Right, that this is an expression of God's image. So not only are LGBTQ plus welcome in spaces like this, but they're absolutely vital and needed. That's the story that I was turning to, but I was very scared that I could be wrong. So, 717, y'all. <laughs> I'm in my bathtub where I do a lot of um, praying and reading, and I was asking God for a sign. Like saying, very honestly, I want, this is what I feel like you're calling me to. But we'd also, in my church context, would be warned about feelings. And don't go by the word. Don't go by your feelings. If your feelings are different than the word. And so I prayed, God, can you give me something, please? I want to do this. Help me to take this leap. 717. I turned to page 717 in my Bible. And we had the church name that we had come up with at the time, is what we were talking about, was the Ark. And uh, we had thought about that in terms of Noah's Ark, all of creation worshiping God, and also the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence would dwell. <coughs> and on page 717, I read this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Okay not really directly related to what <laughs> I've been dealing with. This is the part. Then we get to verse 19. Then, and again, this is in Revelation uh, chapter 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, 
peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And I thought, I wonder what the weather is going to be like tonight. Because <laughs> I was in the bath. I had no idea. We don't have a window in the bathroom. I had no idea what the weather was going to be like. But there was just something. It felt like when I read that, there's something to this. That night, we had the most spectacular lightning storm I'd ever seen. I'm from Nova Scotia, so you have to understand. These huge, big Texas skies, I had never seen anything like this. It was, it was uh, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. It was lighting up the sky, and I actually went out on our balcony. We were in an apartment at the time, and I looked around to see if anyone was there, and I just put up my hands and worshiped God. I felt like this is part of the confirmation for me. And then we got more confirmation because I talked to a friend who kind of went to a similar kind of church as us. Her name was Kelsey. And we got together and said, hey, we're going to start this LGBTQ plus affirming church. Uh, not only do we want you to be in it, we'd love you to be in leadership with us. And that was the first time she ever told us that her son was gay. And this is what she wrote in her journal that night, her journal entry on October 20th, 2018. Last night, I sat with Sean and Mallory O'Neill and dreamed about creating a church that was inclusive of everyone. It was an amazing night where they spoke about their vision of creating a church called The Ark. The thought of it fills me with such hope and joy. Can you imagine all this time I have kept my vision to be in a place that I could, I have kept my vision in my head that someday, I'd be able to be in a place that I could happily welcome anyone that was LGBTQ plus to my church. But never did I dream I could be called to create such a place. Never could I dream that God would intentionally weave my life in a way that would feel equipped and courageous enough to say, yes, of course, I will be, be behind you every step of the way. Truly God has blessed me to entrust me with any small portion of his flock to allow this opportunity. I want to keep track. So again, we've talked about keeping in touch with our stories. I want to keep track of what God does from here. Let me be an arrow, Lord. And she had a picture, uh, a little uh, drawing of an arrow in this place in her journal. Let me be an arrow, Lord. Let me welcome your children who have been turned from every other place to know your great, expansive heart for them. Doesn't that sound a lot like Megan and Courtney's story that I talked about earlier? October 20th, 2018, just as Tebow had that crazy game, three years to the day that he wore John 316 on his eyes, a year to the day that, that uh, we met with Kelsey and she wrote that in her journal, I was ordained on October 20th, 2019. And I did not realize that, that it was exactly a year from that journal entry until I prepared for the talk today. But something devastating had happened in between. In between, Kelsey writing that journal entry on October 20th and then my ordination on October 20th, 2019. That's the reason why I have her journal entry. She died by suicide. And I'm not sure I've ever gone through a deeper time of darkness or grief in my life. And then this is where I get to the part where I'm screaming out Frank at the top of my lungs. Because as we journeyed in the aftermath of Kelsey's suicide, I found out 
that she had faced, a I'm trying to be careful with my words here since we have children here, but she had faced a very difficult, traumatic situation in her youth that involved an elementary principal, a principal at her elementary school. And I was so devastated and furious and anguished and heartbroken when I heard that, that I actually drove to one of the last places where we had had dinner together and I screamed in my car at the top of my lungs, Frank! And tears rolling down my eyes. And let me tell you, just as my friend screaming Frank after that Broncos Tebow victory, I'd say is a holy moment, that moment when I was screaming out Frank over that anguish, I would argue was a holy moment. And why? Because of our reading for today. This is what the message version, how it starts off the reading that Courtney uh, read for us today. Psalm 77 verse one in the message version, this paraphrased version says, I yell out to my God, I yell with all my might, I yell at the top of my lungs. He listens. So let me read it again in the ESV version. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. That's what we were like. We were having sleepless nights. All the praying I was doing was not making me feel better. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. That's a person who's praying, who's trying, and is not feeling much hope, not feeling much better. Has anyone ever been there before? That's holy, y'all. It's holy to be in that place. It's holy to lament and be honest and be angry and be frustrated with God and express that. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion, we often will read the Hebrew Bible or what Christians often call the Old Testament from a New Testament lens. And I, that can be helpful at times. And it's helpful indeed uh, to twin that passage from Psalm 77 about feeling this moaning. All you can do is moan. And your spirit searching for an answer, searching for a hope. Pair that with Romans 8, 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I sure didn't know to, what to pray for at that time. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according to the will of God. What I ended up having to do after that devastating period of grief was recall my story. So this is my favorite book that I, uh, we read in my hospital chaplain residency. It's a book uh, by an African-American named Edward Wimberly called Recalling Our Own Stories. And he talks about the African-American spiritual tradition of 
recalling and reciting a pivotal moment in your life when you felt God called you to something. And to go back to that story, to tell that story again with others present so that you get a new uh, framework for the present circumstances you're dealing with. And I had to remember that story. I had to go back to that original call where I sat on that balcony with my hands lifted high and the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder reminded me of this great God that could do more than I could ask or even think. This is what they say in the psalm for the rest of the portion. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. So this person, this person who's uh, reflected in the psalm here, who felt this moaning, who was meditating and couldn't feel anything, suddenly begins recalling his story and recalling the deeds of old. And not only his little personal story, but the way his little personal story fits into a much bigger story. A story that goes back to Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. So y'all remember I was saying about the 717, how that comes up again and again. Um, when, if someone says to me, would you like to preach at the church? And I say, yes. Uh, and they say, preach on whatever you want. That's like, oh, that's too overwhelming for me. <laughs> like that's a heart of darkness situation where I have to just choose anything in the Bible and preach about it. So I go to the lectionary which is this list of readings that various churches follow each week. And so when I heard that I was going to preach here, I said, well, let me see what the lectionary readings are for that day that I've been asked to preach. And it was, uh, it was this Psalm 77. And when I'm like, see a license plate that is seven, seven, like seven, seven, 17, you know what I mean? 77, one, seven. I, uh, that's even better than just the seven, 17. It's like even more sevens. <laughs> So remember me recalling my story of the lightning and the peals of thunder and I felt like God had changed the narrative for me. He was telling me a better story about LGBTQ plus people. I was asked to speak here today. That's the reading in the lectionary. That, my friends, is 7, 7, 17. It's uh, Psalm 77, verse 17. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. So even the, the writer is saying, lightnings crashing, peals of thunder. The, the, the person who's writing the psalm seems to be talking either about the deliverance of the Hebrew people from Exodus, the Exodus from uh, Egyptian slavery, or the creation of the world, or some combination of the two. And then it says this. So it says, in all those big dramatic things, God's footprints weren't seen. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Courtney and Megan. It, do it doesn't say Courtney and Megan. <laughs> Maybe in the message version it says Courtney and Megan. It says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. 
and Aaron. And let me ask you, as I'm encouraging you today to get in touch with your story, who, by whose hand has God led you up to this point? Isn't that interesting, that combination? God, you led us by the hand by Moses and Aaron. God, you led us by the hands of Courtney and Megan. Fill in the blanks. Two that come for me are Joan and Doug. Joan was a, a Mennonite missionary in Columbia, South America, who I worked with for six months, and she had such a dramatic impact on my faith. She was from Canada, like me, but she was from Saskatchewan, on the western side of Canada. I'm from Nova Scotia on the east. And another guy was Doug, a pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee. And while I was teaching at the University of Tennessee in, in 2012, 2013, Doug was asking me about my arrows, basically. You know, when you think about Cupid, Cupid and an arrow going through your heart, and the arrow goes in and awakens your heart to someone else, usually in that kind of story. Uh, what, what's on your heart? Where's your story going? He said, Sean, when you talk about academia, you sound interested. But when you talk about the church, you light up. You should pay attention to that. But I had no idea what that meant in practice. How was I supposed to go from academia into church ministry? Well, you've heard a little bit of my story, how that happened. And then uh, I actually, in a small church network, was consecrated as a bishop. And we went to Arizona, uh, Mallory and I. And on the Sunday morning, I was going to be consecrated as a bishop in the evening. On the Sunday morning, we were encouraged to just go to, to church wherever we wanted or to do whatever we wanted in the morning. And there was a church I'd heard about, an LGBTQ plus affirming Pentecostal church called Pink Church. And I thought, that sounds intriguing. <laughs> uh, and, but we weren't supposed, Mallory and I had decided we were going to go to a butterfly exhibit in Phoenix. And th but that morning, I thought, I think God's calling us to Pink Church this morning. And I didn't know, because butterflies are really m meaningful for Mallory in multiple ways. They remind her of her late mother, for one. And so I thought, this is kind of sensitive. Let me just make sure. I said, Miles, would you? I don't know why. I feel like God is maybe saying to go to Pink Church. Does that resonate? And she said, sure, let's do it. So I went into the bathtub, again, where I do a lot of my praying and preparation <laughs> of any kinds. And um, I went to Twitter. And there was a th this woman, was uh, the one of the first things I came across was this woman saying that she woke up to her kids yelling, Mennonite power. And of course, whenever I hear the word Mennonite, I think of Joan you know, from Columbia who God used to lead me by the hand in many areas of my life. Uh, and it turned out that, that our kids weren't saying Mennonite power. They were playing some video game and were saying Meta-Nite power. But that was on my head. So it, on my mind was Mennonites and this Canadian Mennonite ahead in Columbia and blah, blah, blah. So um, we go into Pink Church. There are 12 people in the church. Very small little church. I don't know if you can imagine this, but they didn't have anyone leading worship. <laughs> that day. I don't know if they normally have someone leading worship, but they didn't that day. So they had just plugged in like an iPhone into a speaker and it played a couple songs. This is not like anything that I would think was conducive to me having some kind of deep spiritual experience. <laughs> as soon as they started playing the songs, I still have the, whoops, I still have the bulletin from, uh, from Pink Church and with the songs that they played on the back here. As soon as they started playing these songs, I started crying. Like in an embarrassing way where tears were streaming down my, throat and I, down my face and I'm a stranger and people are probably, th and there's only, you can't hide in a group of like 12 people. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> like what is happening? And then found out the pastor was not there. So they had a visiting speaker. Y'all, you just never know 
with a visiting speaker what you're going to get, whether they're going to scream out a swear word at the top of their lungs. And so, so I was like, oh, great. Okay, here we go. And it was a lay person from the church who was going to speak. And she got up and she was speaking about failure, how she had been a missionary and uh, it really hadn't worked out for her. And she started speaking. She said she was raised as a Canadian Mennonite <laughs> from Saskatchewan. And remember that morning, I just had the Mennonite powers already thinking about the Canadian Mennonite from Saskatchewan had been so influential in my life. And then she started talking about her son, her adopted son from South Africa, who at a young age began to feel like he was gay. And that did not square with their theology at the time. The, in fact, his father was adamant that he would go to hell if he lived that, you've heard these awful, that lifestyle. And, but this woman, who shared the same kind of conservative theology of her, her husband, also felt overwhelming love for her son and said, we cannot just shun him. So they sent him, and she's talking, remember like the Canadian Mennonite connection, they sent him to a boarding school in Tennessee. And so she talks, and then sh she says, he went to this like boarding school. It didn't de-gayify him. <laughs> they couldn't pray the gay away. And in fact, after that, he realized that he was, he was on a journey, as we all are in so many different respects, he, that he was trans. So he became she. And this woman who was speaking said, I had to come to terms with the person who was my son now being my daughter. And the husband uh, was, uh, the father was adamant that this was not going to fly in his home. That his son was going to go to hell if he went in this direction. This woman, the mother, began embracing her daughter this child who was blossoming into this beautiful woman. And she didn't know how to work things out theologically, but she just went to this pink church. And they embraced her, and they embraced her daughter. And her daughter was there, and she was crying as her mom was telling this story. And then at the end, she said, does anyone else have any stories that are relevant to? <laughs> I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Canadian missionary, uh, Mennonite missionary from Saskatchewan turned out she had gone to the same school as this woman had gone to in Columbia at one point. Um, and then I said, you said that your daughter, whose name is Temba, you said your daughter went to this boarding school in Tennessee. W where in Tennessee? Knoxville. Remember, in Knoxville, that's the time I was discerning where Doug, the pastor, was saying something like you light up when you talk about the church. But I was still in a theologically conservative context. I said, what years was Temba there? She said, 2012, 2013. That was the same year that I was there hearing from Doug. Think about the arrows in that story. How wobbly the trajectory of the arrows that Temba and I had been following would have looked to anyone when they're looking at our story. And those wobbly arrows with all these vicissitudes end up hitting their target at the same place in Arizona. And that night when I was consecrated as a bishop, the mother, the speaker, came and when they said for family to come forward, she came forward with Mallory to support me.
And I said, uh, does Temba have godparents? And she said, no. And uh, I said, could we be her godparents? She said, yeah. And uh, I, I asked Temba, could we be her godparents? She said, yeah. So I wrote Joan, <laughs> the Canadian Mennonite missionary, and I told her the whole story. And I said, I have a godchild, and she is wonderful. Once I have put away my album for good, Beekner says, you may, in the privacy of the heart, take out the album of y'all's own life, or your own life, and search it for the people and places you have loved and learned from yourself. And for those moments in the past, many of them half forgotten, through which you glimpsed, however dimly and fleetingly, the sacredness of your own journey. When we first uh, got going with the ark, we had those, that incredibly devastating period with our friend's death and other discouragements like COVID hitting shortly after starting a church. Uh, I found out about Collective Church. And I was initially excited because I was like, this is a like-minded a like church. And we're, we had felt quite alone, like we were doing something really unique in this area that there weren't <laughs> a lot of examples of. Uh, but then my it, initial like, connection went to jealousy. Because I like, looked at the space online, and I was like, they have a really cool space. <laughs> and we're meeting in a home. And they basically have the same like, theology so why are we doing what, like, why, are, why do we exist if collective already exists? And I had this thing, this is the honest truth. So we're talking about going through the photo album of <laughs> meaningful events. I had this uh, idea that I, I loved Nicole Nordeman. And I heard that Nicole Nordeman, this Christian singer, had gone on a, a similar kind of journey to a more progressive affirming stance. And I was like, could you imagine if for like one of our key openings of the Ark Church, we could have Nicole Nordeman come and sing. You guys. <laughs> I I'm going through the history of Collective Church, and there is an announcement. But this week, y'all, we will be having Nicole Nordeman come sing at church. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. And quite a long time went by. I reached out to uh, Pastor Rob at the time. And we were supposed to get together. We didn't end up getting together. COVID hit. And then we started this beer and Bible at a place called Tulips in the name of the Ark. And I'm talking to this woman. I had this uh, Catholic shirt on. Remember, my dad's Catholic. Mom's Pentecostal. It's kind of influenced both sides. And my faith, and it was St. Michael of Arch the Archangel. And this woman, Teresa, was talking to me. She said, oh, my nephew or someone just got confirmed in the Catholic Church. And I assumed she was Catholic. So we're talking. And then... Afterwards, uh, later in the conversation, she said, actually, I go to Collective Church. And I was like, what? Like, I had never met anyone from Collective Church. And it, I had this meaningful part of my story with a lot of jealousy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah, the church is in a little bit of a transition at the moment. Uh, and I thought, wow, I wonder if they, like, if I could help and preach at this church and if Nicole Norman would. <laughs> and so I reached out to Rob, and then uh, that got passed on to the wonderful Courtney and Megan. And here I am. 
And this, I imagine, is a much longer sermon than you are used to hear. <laughs> Remember, my mom is Pentecostal. What does it mean, what does it mean when a Pentecostal preacher check, checks his watch? Nothing. <laughs> so, I am closing with this. Also, that never meant anything when they said, I close with this. There were still like four or five stories after that. But here's the thing. Keep in touch with your story. The past, the present, and the future. Look for these arrows, arrows that are often going to turn up in the form of people. Who is it that's leading you by God's hand? Who has led you by God's hand? We know for sure from this reading today in the Psalms that in terms of the present, it is absolutely appropriate and holy to lament about our present. I don't know about y'all, but I had some stuff happen this week in both big public stories and little stories in my life that caused me to feel frustrated and angry and confused. It is absolutely biblical and holy to lament. That's one of the arrows for our present. I hope you also heard the encouragement of the arrow for your present with these coincidences that you've turned up in the right place at the right time. You're doing fine and don't ever think you've been forgotten. And then the arrow is also going to point backward. We are called to get in touch with our stories of the past. And sometimes when we've had that encouragement, we've had that lament, when we go back to the past stories, we'll see them in a new way. We need to remember that these little stories of our lives, with all the ups and downs, are part of a much bigger story. And so that means that our little stories are part of a bigger story that's pointing to the future. And here, you want to know where this story is pointing to in the future? You have to go to 717. Mm -hmm. Revelation 717, about our little stories being subsumed in this big story. This is where we're going. Revelation 717 says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is where we are going. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I forgot how we end in here. <laughs> we sing this Nicole Nordeman song together. My favorite, the cover time after time. That uh, Cindy Lauper, that, no, I'm just joking. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening.